Today we have a very interesting guest with us, Professor Harriet Hiscock. Now, Professor Hiscock is the Associate Director of Research at the Children's Centre for Community Child Health, and she's also the Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Health Service Research Unit, bit of a mouthful, and Group Leader of the Health Services at Murdoch Children's Research Institute. So without further ado, Professor Hiscock, a very warm welcome, and it's great to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks, um, Gigi. I, it's a long time ago, it was 19, late 1990s, that I was finishing my paediatric training, so I'm a paediatrician, and I thought I wanted to do some research because I enjoyed seeing families one-on-one, but I realised with research you could help you know, tens to hundreds uh, to potentially thousands of families at a time. So. I looked around my institute at the time, um, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne in Australia, and there was a particular um, colleague who was doing a lot of great research. So I went to talk with her and she said, um, what about the link between sleep problems in babies and depression in mums or depression symptoms? And I looked into the literature and there was very little that had been done in terms of trying to intervene and seeing if you could treat sleep problems in babies in order to improve um, mental health for mums. So that was my first study um, conducted in the late 90s. Wow, interesting. And, and what was your biggest learning from that? Oh, one, one that actually loved it. Um, two, that mums were really quite lonely and isolated. And, you know, the model was um, a randomised trial where they either got usual care or they got to see me for a couple of interventions at their local um, well child nurse centre. But a lot of mums just wanted to meet in the cafe because they actually mm. wanted to go out socially and, and get some help for their babies as well as get some help for them. And you know, and the intervention was a success. It, yeah, we, we showed that with two appointments and a phone call um, that you could improve sleep in babies and improve depression symptoms in mums as well. Interesting. And what did the was the link directly because the mother was getting more sleep or did it... Were you able yeah. to index? Yeah, it, it seemed to be associated with um, improved sleep quality and quantity in mothers as well. Um, but we were only looking at symptoms of depression, not formal diagnoses. So, you know, to what extent were the symptoms because of sleep deprivation in the mums rather than depression per se? But in some ways I thought it didn't really matter because they were suffering. <laughs> Either way, it was life was pretty tough and for a pretty brief intervention we were able to bring some, some help. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, and, and then when you got into the world of, of baby sleep, what has been your kind of biggest surprise that you maybe didn't expect to find? Yeah, the passion people have behind baby sleep um, at different ends of the scale. And um, I'm sure our listeners will be aware there's some people who are very into, um, you know, what we might call attachment parenting and holding the baby, you know, for most of the day, breastfeeding on demand. And that can work well for some families, but equally um, I set up the Unsettled Babies Clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital and ran that for 10 years. And we saw some really exhausted and continue to see some really exhausted mums and dads um, and their babies where that approach perhaps hadn't worked for them. And then there was the other sort of end of the spectrum, which um, was really seeing a behavioural response to managing sleep problems in babies, particularly after the age of six months. Okay. And so you've said, you've said six months, and I know that, you know, somewhere between the ages of four, typically in six months is where uh, usually sleep training can be recommended. Could you kind of walk us through why it's recommended at that age and, and what do parents do before the age of, let's say, six months? 
Yeah, good question. I think the reason why we gravitate to the, that slightly older age is um, that naturally babies wake up overnight and will want to feed overnight, but from six months of age, nutritionally, they can get enough during the, the daytime to meet their needs. So that's why um, if they wake overnight after six months, again, it's family choice, but you don't have to feed them overnight at that time. Um, so before that, we, we tend to say a little bit go with the flow, certainly for the first three months when the baby's just been born, they're just trying to navigate the world, which is, you know, new, all the sounds, sensations, etc. And also we know that crying in babies peaks at around six to eight weeks. And that's whether you're born in London, Africa, Australia, etc. Um, if you're premature, you know that it still peaks at around six to eight weeks corrected age with a prem baby. Uh, and so trying to respond to that crying is, is, you know, quite challenging, particularly with high crying babies or what, you know, babies talk about having colic. So it doesn't really make sense at that age to be trying to do sleep strategies per se. Um, I think after that three months or so of age, you can certainly have an approach where you're having a regular routine and encouraging babies to put themselves to sleep. But really, it's from six months onwards when we know they don't have to have a feed overnight that you can start with sleep strategies in a bit more rigor. I'd like, to, I'd like to drill down on two things you said. One, you mentioned a routine. I'd love to understand a bit more about why is a routine important? What should a routine entail? And then you said also that babies have to learn how to put themselves to sleep. So if we could start with that, um, could you expand on what you mean by put themselves to sleep? Yeah, look, I think a common myth out there, particularly amongst new parents, is that babies will just sleep. Um, and a bit like babies will just feed. But actually for, for babies and, and for humans, sleep is a learned skill. So it's something that we can help to teach babies. And the routine can become part of that. So a good bedtime routine promotes consistency, is reassuring to babies. They know what to expect next. So it might be, um, you know, a feed outside the bedroom, a cuddle on the couch, a look at a book, then into the bedroom, wrapping, maybe, you know, holding them, rocking them for a little bit, but trying to put them down into their cot drowsy but still awake so that they can learn to put themselves to sleep. And the reason that's really important is that um, we naturally wake up several times overnight. You might sort of remember times pre-baby when you wake up and you, you know, you, the doona's come off or you're a bit cold and you adjust yourself and you go back to sleep again. That night waking is normal for all of us. But if um, at the start of the night you've learnt to go to sleep with someone patting you or a dummy in your mouth, a pacifier, or being, you know, um, fed to sleep, when you wake up overnight, which is normal, you're going to want to be padded back to sleep or have the pacifier or to be, you know, fed back to sleep. And that's what we call a sleep association or a sleep cue. And if babies become dependent on that sleep association that's parent-led, then they'll want to do that at the start of the night and overnight as well. And you, you mentioned the word parent-led. If, mm. do you, will, will babies still have sleep associations, but what they do is they learn to have their own, their internal led or their own led sleep associations versus parent led. And yes. could you drill down and then what does that then look like in practice? Yeah, so that that's the ideal that your baby is able to learn to put themselves to sleep and self-soothe. And so older babies, they might be sucking a thumb. Um, after the age of one, we certainly encourage, you know, um, 
toy or something in in the cot, not before the age of one because of SIDS. Um, but they, they learn to do that. A lot of babies will rock their head back and forth in the cot. And I've seen lots of mums really worried about that, but that's fantastic. It's like being on a rocking chair. It's self-soothing for babies. So they'll use their own little way. They might chat to themselves before they go to sleep. Some parents describe the engine, you know, and that's a tired sign for their baby as well. So the ideal is that they develop their own sleep associations and sleep cues to fall asleep. Awesome. Thank you. And you also mentioned that, um, you know, those are signs that children are sleepy and are self-settling. How does a parent know and what sort of strategies can they use to look for when their child is getting tired and preferably not waiting until the child is overtired? Yes. So in, in a little baby, so I'm talking, you know, under six months here, um, the sorts of things they might do is they might start frowning. They might start clenching their fists and having really jerky arm movements. So next time, you know, you're with your baby or, or you know, near a baby, watch them because you'll see them being, you know, quite happy, smiling, relaxed, um, no clenching the fist, and then they'll start to transition to those things. Then they'll start grizzling, and then they'll start crying, and crying is usually a late sign, and a sign they might be overtired. Older, you know, children sort of six months onwards might do some of that, but they might also rub their eyes, they might stare into the distance, and they'll also become, um, they're not long, no longer wanting to engage with their toys. And so a lot of parents will misread that as boredom, and try and pick them up and play more with them and walk them, etc. But actually, they're just saying, I'm tired and I want to lie down and go to sleep. Okay. I think I, I, I can relate to that. I definitely start to zone out when I get tired. Um, yeah, the 90-mile stare, we call it. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you, um, you also touched on children crying. And I think one thing we see a lot is that there is a huge anxiety in in parents when it comes to crying could you talk a little bit about you know what you what you've experienced and and why is a child crying such a stressful experience for a parent and and you know should parents be worried and what is the most what is the most healthy response that you've seen in relation to crying yeah so look i mean the number one thing is all babies and children cry so that is just normal and obviously as we grow up and mature as as, as human beings we cry less because we have words to express how we're feeling, and we have other ways to express. But um, for babies and children, they, you know, when when they're happy, they can smile at us. But when they are getting tired, sometimes the only way they can express that, or the late sign, is crying. So um, in terms of then soothing them, it becomes a little bit harder, but not impossible. So from the age of six months onwards, when we talk about sleep strategies, you know, one of them does involve cuddling your baby, putting them down in their cot, drowsy but awake, and then leaving the room, and then coming back and forth to them. And during that time, they may cry, but um, what you hope to do is as you're coming back and forward is eventually they learn to put themselves to sleep. And typically after, you know, three or four or five nights, they're doing that with minimal or no crying. So I think, you know, it's understanding that crying is a form of communication, it's not doing any long-term harm to the babies, and certainly we've done um, lots of trials now with, you know, babies six months and older using these sleep techniques, following them up at 12 months, at two years of age, and then again at five years of age, and showing no short or long-term um, harm in terms of any mental health problems 
or any problems with the mother-child um, relationship as well. So I think I think it's natural that we, you know, when our baby cries, we, we feel distressed and we want to go and pick them up. But it's when you're doing the sleep strategies from six months of age onwards, one of the techniques, you know, the coming in and out, the control comforting, the control crying, it's got many names, um, that will involve some crying, but it's for a short-term period. And usually, if it works, then your baby's sleeping better, you're sleeping better, and everyone functions better the next day. And the control crying, would that be, um, is that the same as Verba when you refer to? Yes. Yeah, okay. so it's known as Verba or the checking method because the parent's coming in and out of the baby's room checking on them, checking they're okay, but encouraging them to, to settle themselves to sleep and not doing it for them. Got you. And do you have any strategies that parents who are doing any kind of sleep, sort of formal sleep training, when, you know, how, I know there's a lot of physiological responses that can go on and especially parents when they hear a child cry. And um, you, you, do you have any kind of advice in, term, in terms of either how to, I think, reframing it as crying as communication, really understanding that there's no long-term harm and it's a very normal part of childhood. That's probably a, a big portion of it. Um, is there any other sort of suggestion in terms of how parents can get comfortable with it? Yeah, look, I think it's really hard to get comfortable with it. I think it's not hanging outside the bedroom door when you're doing this technique. It's actually going somewhere else in the house, um, you know, where you can still hear your baby there in earshot, but you're not right there. And, and go and do something. Make a cup of tea. Sit down, you know, do something else. Um, a lot of the time when you're doing this method, it's you might be doing it at certain time intervals that you're waiting. Um, so wait in another room and be on the same page as your partner. So if you're doing it with someone else, it's really important you're doing it as a team. Otherwise, you know, you're doing it at 2 a.m. and they're going, just go in now, just go in now and pick her up. And you're going, no, 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 we've got to wait a couple more minutes. And, and that that's really tough. But it's short-term pain for long-term gain as well. It's mm. another way to think about it. Completely. And, and touching on the relationship point, um, I think another thing we, we see very often is sleep becomes such a tricky issue when it, when there's a relationship dynamic. Grandparents can sometimes get involved. You know, there's multiple stakeholders in this. And, um, you know, do you have, I guess, best advice to get on the same page? But, do, you know, do you think, do is the advice to say, really understand exactly what the process is going to be and commit to it together? Yes, and I think write it down. I think the problem is for parents, they're so sleep deprived often when they get to the point that they want to do something about their child's sleep because they've usually held off and um, resisted. So I think it's really important that they um, get on the same page, write it down so everyone's clear what's happening at 2 p.m., at 2 a.m., etc., cetera, um, and support each other, you know, and, and also with any sleep sort of strategy and approach, you should be doing it with the help of um, some professional support because it doesn't, you know, the strategy you first choose often works for about 70 to 80% of families, but not every family. So sometimes you need to be prepared to call it quits after a certain time and say, okay, that hasn't worked for our child. What can we do instead and get an advice on that? Okay, really interesting. And do you see any difference um, over the years working with mums and dads and I think another really interesting thing that we've sort of seen is that the, oftentimes people, the, the people who come to us are women. And mm -hmm. is there any strategies, especially in those sort of first six months, but even maybe sooner in the first couple of weeks that can really help dads to pull into the process? Because 
from you know what I've heard as well, there's often a feeling from a dad's perspective of being isolated because there's a lot of, you know, he the dad can't breastfeed. So if a mom does breastfeed, that's a, a very bonding, very dependent action. Uh, and there seem to be a number of these these other things. And I, a lot of the research points to to dads not speaking to their friends as much about uh, having children, not speaking to professionals, not seeking advice online. And so what we see is moms come much more informed, typically. Um, but is there any, yeah, w- would you suggest any strategies for dads in the early days to really be yeah. able to not feel like a spare part, really? Yeah. Look, I think this is so important um, for the dads themselves, for the mums, and also for the child to have this um this input in their lives from dads. So dads can do a lot of things and mums have to let them do a lot of things as well. So this goes two ways and the mother's got to be supportive. But certainly um, things like helping with nappy change, with bath time, with, um, you know, if if mum is breastfeeding and needing to burp the baby in between sides, dads can pick up the baby and do that. There is so much that they can do. And I have seen some families where the mums think they have to do everything and won't allow their partners to do anything. So it's got to be a two-way street. But also dads need um, a little bit of time left alone to build their confidence. So I think as mums, you have to be careful not to criticise how they might be bathing the baby or putting on the nappy and, and be really supportive of that time. And, and given the chance, dads will jump at this. Um, I think it's hard because often they don't get as much leave from their jobs. So they, you know, they're around for a couple of weeks or a few weeks and then they have to go back to work. But, you know, of course, they're around during weekends and we should be actively encouraging them to take part Um Partly, as you say, for their own mental health as well, because we know that dads can get postnatal depression as well as mothers. Completely. And, you know, research is also finding that dads are increasingly attaching part of a huge part of their identity to being a dad. And you're right. A lot of them, the paternity leave is typically much shorter. Um, and furthermore, they don't seem to have as much of an uptake on paternity leave. So the plan going into paternity leave is, yes, I'm going to take my full paternity leave. And often dads then go back early. And I think there's something really interesting here if you look at what they are saying they want and then what they're doing in practice. And I think there's so much layers of societal pressure that get put on that on a dad in that relationship. And I think you're completely right. It's, you know, how how can the mum, if the mum is taking the lead in the first couple of weeks, to also really include dad in these sort of fundamental uh, important yeah, things. Yeah, and I, I think this has to start right from, you know, the antenatal classes, the birth. Um, if there's any in Australia, we have a wonderful network of well-child nurses, but predominantly they see the mum and the baby, not the mum and the dad and the baby. And But some of them have started offering Saturday appointments, so more dads turn up at those appointments as well. So there's a lot of society-wide things of how we offer our health services, I think, where we could be far more dad-inclusive. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And then changing gears a little bit, I'd love to – we've spoken sort of more about the earlier sort of zero to six months, six months when you start being able to sleep train. I'd love to talk about toddlers and how do toddlers differ from babies and what age do you define a child becoming a toddler and how does that approach change, especially when as yeah. it pertains to sleep and sleep training? So toddlers are a lot of fun but exhausting. So really um, with a toddler, you're sort of thinking about that well, 18 months to three years of age, and then we think of them as preschoolers after that. So the nature of the sleep problems they present with change, 
Um, and we get a lot of what we call um, a limit setting issues. So these are the toddlers who come in and out of the bedroom at the start of the night. I want to go to the bathroom. I want to tell you something. I want to drink. I'm scared. All of those things, we call those curtain calls. And what they're doing is they're testing the limits of their parents around bedtime. You know, how many times can I come out of my room before I go to sleep? They also have developed imaginations by that age. So they've got often quite vivid imaginations and that's when you get the stories of I'm scared of the dark, you know, there's something under my bed, there's something in the cupboard. Um, so that I guess the nature of the sleep problems change from being that sleep onset association issue with babies where they're padded or rocked or fed to sleep to more the limit setting disorders um, or the, the issues with nighttime fears as well. And how preventable do you think those limit setting issues are? Yeah, so they're, they're really preventable. Um, so if, you, if on our website, sleepwithkip.com, we've got a great book called The Old Bedtime Pass Puncher. And this is a method where, um, you know, you'll give, give your child a pass out, basically, a card, and they can come out of their room for one reason at the start of the night, and then they have to hand that card over to you till the morning. And this obviously limits the, the number of curtain calls, the times they come in and out of the room. And then if you can reward them the next day for doing that with a stamp or a sticker, um, then that really can motivate toddlers in particular to just come out of their room once and not multiple times. So it's, it's very um, preventable and it's very treatable as well. Awesome. And what do you see as the biggest blocker then to these limit setting issues? Is it, you know, what can a parent do? And I suppose, what are the biggest um, challenges a parent has with these limit, limit setting problems? And I think what's wonderful, what you mentioned is you've kind of given a roadmap to give a very actionable way to be able to set a very clear boundary. Um, but yeah, what are the most common issues you see with, with limit setting, setting, specifically from the parent's side? Yeah, it, it's when they find it hard to set limits on their child. And, and, and parents may worry, oh, if I they might really be thirsty or they might really be hungry or they might really want something. And, um, you know, we often say who's running the household and often it's a toddler running the household. And realising as a parent that if you set a few boundaries around this, um, then your child will sleep better, they'll feel better the next day, you will feel better the next day as well. And I've had children actually say to me, mum forgot to do the bedtime pass method. So they actually start to get used to it and they feel secure and comfortable with it because for I, one of the analogies I give my parents is if you put a child into the ocean, it's terrifying. They can't see the bottom. They can't see the ends. If you put them to the, in the pool, they can see the bottom and they can see the sides of the pool. They feel much more secure and safe. And so all a lot of our sleep strategies we do, like saying you can just come out once, not 10 times, actually makes the child feel more secure and more safe. And that, um, that's an important thing for parents to understand and be reassured by so then they can do these sorts of techniques. I absolutely love that analogy. And why, why do you think it is that giving clearer boundaries, I mean, we've also we've seen this time and time yeah. again, it, to be true in practice, but what about having that secure limit helps a child, especially yeah. at that age? I, I look, I think it's so confusing for parents at the moment. There's so much information and misinformation and everyone's got an opinion and we really need to step back and look at the evidence and the science and what that tells us, such as setting some limits actually is, is 
underpinned by love, you know, and, and care, but some limits is actually the best thing for a child's social and emotional development. But I think there's a lot of very powerful voices that say other things and then parents end up getting very confused and, and a lot of mixed messages. Mm, completely. And what are the, the, the sort of most common stories that parents tell themselves when they almost, you know, they don't want to set a limit and they tell themselves a story that that is the reason why? Yeah, look, I, I think they they do get worried about any protest from their child and any testing of the limits and they think that that's going to cause long-term damage if they do set some limits. But, you know, again and again, myself and others have shown that that is not true and that to for a child to thrive and to grow and feel confident and secure in themselves, they need love, but they need some limits as well. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, really, mm. really interesting. Um, awesome. And you mentioned as well protest. Could you expand yeah. on what do you mean by protest? Yes. So this is the child who may, particularly as a toddler, they're getting into the, that tantrum stage anyway. And you see these protests during the day with their tantrums and then they can often spill over into sleep and when you're doing sleep strategies. So that's when they're yelling, screaming, you know, refusing to do things. More of an angry approach rather than an anxious approach. Um, and I think for anxious toddlers, there's different strategies to use other than the bedtime pass. But um, they're just they're just angry that they're not getting their own way. And again, that's just a normal part of toddler development. They're testing the limits of your parenting. They're developing their own autonomy, which is really important. Um, and for some things you can let them have their way, that's absolutely fine. But for things like sleep, where we know getting good sleep is healthy for them and healthy for you, that's when it's fine to set some limits. Mm, interesting. And the toddlers you mentioned that are more of the anxious toddlers, first of all, how do you identify that as a parent? And second of all, what is underpinning that anxiety? Yeah, so they're the toddlers we see who um, I often say to parents, when you're putting your child to bed, if they start protesting, for example, when you leave the room, is it an angry cry or an anxious cry? And parents are often pretty good at sorting that out. And they'll go, no, no, he's just furious that I've left the room. Well, that's something you can do a checking method or the limit setting, uh, so the, the pass out method for that. But if they're no, no, they're really scared and frightened and anxious when I leave the room, then we, we move more to a technique called camping out, um, which is a more gradual technique that parents can use. But I, I think also sometimes these toddlers who are anxious, they're also anxious in other parts of their life. So, um, for example, if they're at childcare um, or early learning centres, they're often taking a lot longer to separate from their parents beyond, you know, it's often hard the first few weeks, but, you know, it might be halfway through the year and they're still finding it really hard to separate. Or they're just generally quite anxious at trying new things and having new experiences. Mm, interesting. And is there any link then when sleep gets resolved and when there is, you know, or very clear boundaries and, and a lot more certainty built in around sleep, do you see any impact in the daytime behaviour? Yeah, look, certainly for most children, if they haven't had enough sleep or it's been very broken sleep, so poor sleep quality, if you can improve the amount of sleep and the quality of sleep, that usually has good flow and effects the next day to, to um, better social and emotional and behavioural, you know, well-being, basically. 
There will be some kids who are always have an anxious tendency and that often runs in families. They might have a bit of an anxious mum or an anxious dad as well. Um, so anxiety is, you know, feeling anxious is part of all our lives. And then that becomes more, um, as they get older, learning uh, strategies and, and their own sort of tools to manage that um, as, mm. as they will face things in their life that will make them anxious. But in that early age group, it's, it's being more gentle in your approach with these kids and the camping out technique where you you put the camp bed or the chair right next to their, their cot or their bed. And the first few nights you might pat them off to sleep. The next few nights you might sit there and just use your voice. And then you gradually, you know, over you know a couple of weeks often, move your camp bed or chair outside the bedroom. Again, rewarding them in the morning for being able to stay in their bed while you're doing that as the parent. And the morning, talking of the morning, is often a, a hotly contested uh, topic. What would you define as an early morning wake versus actually just someone's getting up in the morning? Yes, they're, they're often quite quite similar. So anything before 6am I think is really hard for parents to manage. Um, but I, I see children who wake before 6am as sort of falling into three categories. One is they've just had enough sleep. So they've gone to bed, you know, maybe at 7 o'clock at night. They wake up at 5.30 and they're just ready to go for the day. Um, and um, they're often got a genetic tendency, what we call a lark sort of tendency, to be up in the morning. There's a second group who, when they wake up early, they get rewarded for doing so. And the reward might be they get put on the iPad or they get to turn the television on and that reinforces that behaviour. Um, and the third group is um, they've gone to bed too early the night before. That's really uncommon, though, because parents have usually tried already to shift their bedtime later and found it hasn't made any difference. So then the challenge becomes, well, what if they are a lark? Um, what, do you, what do I do? Because these children are just naturally waking up early and they are ready to go and they've generally you know, had enough sleep. And that's when we um, do something like put a clock radio out in the corridor outside the bedroom, we might set it to come on at 6am and say when you hear the music, that's when you can come out of your bedroom. And in that half hour before that, um, they can play quietly with their toys, read books or whatever it might be. Um, but the idea is they stay in their room until they hear the music. And then again, you reward them for being able to do that. Yeah. And, and from your experience, what age groups does that typically work from? Yeah, so it's it's when your child can understand the music coming on and staying in the bedroom and that concept. So as young as three, some some kids can do that. Okay. Um, and we do have a book, Slug Dad and Monster Mum, that talks about early morning waking, which is a, a fun book to read with children because the other thing for all our sleep strategies with toddlers and older, the child has to be on board with what's mm. happening. Otherwise, it won't happen. So whenever I see a child... At the end of it, I'll say, right, what do you reckon? Do you think you can do that and let me know how things are going in two weeks? And if they go, yes, then I'm home and hosed. If they say, nope, then it's not going to work. Oh, so wow, interesting. And, and so in that in that scenario, if, if a child yeah. says, nope, not happening, how do, yeah. what do you, where do you go from there? Really hard. So the other thing is you can offer a different strategy. Um, you can talk about the rewards and see if that's motivating enough. Um, but if they absolutely say no, I say to the parents, give it a go for three to five nights. But if it's not working, you might just have to stop and try again in a little while. And sometimes choosing the child's next birthday, if they can hold out that long, um, can be really good. And say, you know, you're going to be five. You're going to be a big boy now. Do you think you still need to do this? 
that's the case, you might have to have a daytime sleep like a baby as well. And that's usually enough to say. Mm, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And and what if what's the spectrum in terms of how old have you seen sleep issues exist oh, for? Yeah, into teenage years, um, particularly where there's been underlying um, an anxious child who doesn't want to go to sleep alone or can manage to do that but wakes up in the middle of the night, which, you know, as we talked about, is normal, but goes into their parents' bedroom. And so the parents, you know, then have to – someone moves out to the couch or they get all get a bad night's sleep. Um, so certainly into the teenage years, uh, I see mm. those issues. Yeah. And is it often – with the children that – those sleep issues persist in the teenage years, are those typically unresolved issues earlier in terms of they ha- they've never had any formal sleep training? Yeah. And do you think preemptive sleep training would have helped that? Yeah, so typically they haven't had that sleep training or the parents have tried for a couple of nights and then stopped. Um, whether or not it would help, yeah, intuitively I would say yes, but I guess we haven't had those long-term studies to mm. definitively say that, yeah. yeah. And for those parents who do have the older kids, um, what what do you suggest yeah. in terms of approach? Yeah, so again, it's discussing it with the child and understanding why they're doing this. Is there something else going on during the daytime that they're worried about? So often there can be things at school like bullying or they might have issues with learning and you actually need to address those because that's the root cause and sleep is just a symptom. Um, so it's important that they get some help for that or if there's you know, more of a flavour of this is actually an anxiety disorder than seeing a psychologist to help with strategies around that's very important. But at the same time, um, you could talk through with the child and, and, you know, negotiate with them, okay, can we do the camping out technique at the start of the night? When you wake up overnight, rather than going straight to mum and dad's bed, can they come back and sit on wherever their chair is and continue that camping out technique? But if the young person says, no, I'm not going to do that, um, overnight, then I often say, let's put a mattress on the floor of the parents' bedroom. And it's okay to go and lie on that mattress um, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., but it's not okay to wake up mum and dad because they need to do the, what they need to do the next day and they need their sleep. And usually um, a young person, you know, um, we're often talking about primary school age kids here, they'll go and do that if they know that they can, you know, go on a mattress and feel secure uh, next to their parents. And I always say to parents, they won't keep doing this forever. So <laughs> yeah. there will come a time when they don't want to sleep with you anymore. Um, but often the parents are just exhausted because they haven't had a proper night's sleep for years. Mm, it's tough. It, yeah, it's really, really yeah. tough. And yeah. maybe taking picking up on that thread and maybe zooming out a little bit, how do parents know, at what point does a parent know or um, should they consider actually taking action with regards to a, a sleep issue? Yeah, look, there's no real correct answer for this. It's when the family is ready to, and, and by the time the families reach out, they've often just gone, we can't keep doing this, we have had enough. So there certainly has to be um, the family seeing it as an issue and as a problem um, before it's going to work, you know, because you're not going to take on a sleep strategy unless you, you want to. The other thing I do think is if you think the lack of sleep is impacting your child the next day, so are they really grumpy and irritable? Um, certainly once they get to school, are they falling asleep on the way home in the car or, you know, they're falling asleep in the classroom? That's certainly a sign that they need 
um, some help with their sleep. So I think it's a combination of the impact of the lack of sleep on the child and has the family got to the point where they want to do something about it. Mm. Okay. And when parents are thinking about preemptively trying to avoid some of these problems, what's your view in actually preemptively setting up those good sleep associations, those good sleep habits? How doable is that? And is that something you would recommend for parents? Oh, look, 100%. I think that's absolutely something. So setting up a good sleep routine and encouraging your child to self-settle, you know, from as young as six months is a fabulous way to go. Or if you want to do it later, you know, toddler years, it's it's never too early to start. Um, And the routine doesn't have to be to the absolute minute, but it's just that that sequence of events that they know is going to happen that's predictable, that's reassuring, that's relatively consistent. And that that will set them up with really good sleep habits to be able to put themselves to sleep and when they wake up overnight to be able to naturally um, resettle overnight as well. And you mentioned predictability and consistency, Mm. and that does seem to be a very common thread when it comes to dealing with children. And does that again link back to that underlying security and sort of understanding of where that limit is and what to expect? Yeah, absolutely it does. And it also gives the children a sense of, um, you know, mastery over something. You know, aren't you fantastic? You know, we we should be celebrating, I mean, their natural developmental milestones, but isn't that fantastic that you can feed yourself now, that you can dress yourself now, that you can, you know, put yourself to sleep. And when you wake up overnight, you can turn around and cuddle your teddy and go back to sleep. That's fabulous. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think as you mentioned, like bringing bringing the child into the situation and making it fun and playful. And I'd love to maybe just um, expand a bit more on sleep with Kip. How did you know what prompted yes. that? And I, I know the reception has been fantastic. Um, so so yeah, how did how did that start? And if you could give a little bit more information on yes. on what that is. Well, Sleep with Kip has been really the brainchild of a colleague of mine who doesn't do research. He deals more in the the world of you know parenting and bringing you know health literacy so the information to parents and to children and so really what it is it's um, really the result of two decades of our research of looking at what sleep strategies work and turning six of the most common strategies into a bedtime book or a book that can be read actually at any time it's aimed at three to eight year olds and they're really fun and engaging books that empower children to want to sleep well So there's one for camping out, one for the checking method, one for nighttime fears. There's a beautiful one with visual imagery and relaxation on a beach with a sandcastle turtle. Um, There's also one on the bedtime pass method for those toddlers who come in and out of their room at the start of the night. And there's also one for children who wake up too early in the morning. And it's getting the kids to realise the impact of what they're doing on the parents as well and on themselves, Um, but having a bit of fun with it and empowering them to um, want to change their sleep themselves. Mm. And we're just having feedback from parents. They can read the book to their child and do the bedtime pass method and three days later they've got a kid wanting to stay in their room at the start of the night. That's amazing. And why why is playing with a child and sort of – bringing a learning through in a fun, engaging way. Why is that so powerful? Because oh, I think that's naturally the way that children want to learn. They learn so much through play. And I think we've lost a lot of opportunities for that. You know, in modern society, we go very much straight into, um, you know, the sort of formal curriculum often, and it's having a play-based approach that will really engage them 
in the first place, which you need to do, especially with toddlers and onwards, but also just allow them to enjoy the process and feel that sense of mastery as well. And that's what we're aiming for with the books. Awesome. Amazing. Um, Harriet, thank you so much. Um, I think that was, we've spanned a lot. We've gone right from, you know, birth, we've spoken about societal systemic issues um, all the way through. So thank you so much. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast. And um, yep, thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Awesome.